and welcome to JG Ministries Bible Study, where we study God's Word. Now last time, <clears throat> excuse me, we finished with chapter 2 and we started chapter 3 by taking a look at the controversy of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. So today let's continue in chapter 3 with Jesus' later Galilean ministry. So turn with me to verse 7 of chapter 3 of the Gospel of Mark, and let's get into it. <clears throat> now, a summary statement in chapter 3, verse 7, actually 7 through 12, is going to begin this new section of Mark's Gospel, which ends with the sending out of the 12. Now, in between are going to be two obvious sections, parables about the kingdom and miracles of Jesus' power over hostile forces. And we'll see that in chapter 4. Now, in addition, there are several units that's going to deal with hostility and rejection. And there's a brief account <clears throat> of the selection and the training of the 12. And we'll see that in chapter 3. So let's begin with verse 7 as we read our scripture. And verse 7 begins... But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. <clears throat> so he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. <clears throat> now let's stop there for a moment here. Let's go back to verse 7. <clears throat> because we have Jesus withdrawing. Jesus withdrew, probably because he knew the authorities were out to get him. And since the time had not yet come for a serious confrontation with them, Jesus went to the lake of Gennesaret. And this withdrawal, however, didn't separate him from the crowds. Now leaving the synagogue, <clears throat> we see that Jesus withdrew to the Sea of Galilee. And the sea in the Bible often symbolizes the Gentiles. So, therefore, his action may have depicted his turning from the Jews to the Gentiles. And we see that the crowds that came to Jesus in verse 8 were not only from the region's just in the vicinity of Capernaum, but also from the south of Jerusalem and Idumea. They came from the east across the Jordan, which included Perea and Decapolis. And we see them from the northwest. <clears throat> we saw them from Tyre and Sidon. The fact that the renown of Jesus reached the Jerusalem authorities, who sent the representatives up to Galilee, to observe what was going on, 
suggests an advanced stage in the ministry of Jesus. <clears throat> so as we take a look at verses 9 and 10, we have a great multitude of people that's gathered. And like I said, not only from Galilee or from the Galilean area, but from different parts as well. And the crowd was so great that Jesus asked for a small boat so that he could push off from the shore to avoid being crushed by all these people that came to Jesus for healing. Now, only Mark includes this detail about the boat. And its purpose, of course, was to provide an escape for Jesus just in case the crowd began to get unruly or just kept coming in in swarming numbers. <clears throat> he certainly didn't want to get crushed by all these numbers of people because we have great numbers of people that are just that keep pressing forward to try and get to Jesus. They're trying to touch Jesus in a hope that they might be healed of whatever they have, disease or whatever. And once again, the crowd seems to have had little interest in Jesus other than the fact that he is this miracle worker. But despite all that, Jesus graciously healed them. He healed many of them. In fact, the Bible doesn't have all the healings that Jesus did. We only have a small account of them. And you know that he had to have performed many and many and many because even the scriptures say multitudes came for these healings. And again, Jesus came into conflict with the demonic. As we look at verses 11 and 12, <clears throat> we see that the evil spirits, they recognized who Jesus was. Even if the crowds didn't have a clue who he was, they did. And by crying out, you are the son of God, they were trying to control Jesus. They wanted to neutralize his power because in Bible times and even in the present day, knowledge of a person's name confers power over that person. And Son of God is a true designation of who Jesus is. And Jesus, he silenced the outcries of these demons. Because the time for the clear revelation of who Jesus was had not come yet. Now when unclean spirits in the crowd cried out that he was the Son of God, we have Jesus sternly warning them to stop saying this. Because as already noted, he would not receive the witness of evil spirits. He didn't deny that he was the Son of God, because he is, and he was then, the Son of God. But he chose to control the time and the manner of being revealed as such. He controlled the time and manner of when that was going to be released, that he is the Son of God. Now, Jesus had the power to heal, but his miracles were performed only on those who came for help. And so it is with salvation. 
Jesus' power to save is sufficient for all, but efficient only for those who will trust him. Now we learn from the Savior's ministry that need does not constitute a call. There was need everywhere, and Jesus depended on instructions from God the Father as to where and to when to serve. Jesus always worked on the will of God the Father. He never did anything on his own. He always did what the Father told him to do. What the Father's will was, that's what Jesus did. And so must we. We must always do the will of God and not our own. So let's go ahead and move on because we're going to get into the servant's call and the training of his disciples here. <clears throat> Verse 13, we're going to start getting into the selection of the 12. And the 12 disciples are chosen. So let's go back to our scriptures here to verse 13. And let's begin. And when he, and that's Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Then he appointed twelve, and they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sickness, and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boengers, and that is, the sons of thunder. Now Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. So there is our <clears throat> 12 disciples chosen. The Bible tells us that Jesus withdrew to the hill country of Galilee. And he called 12 disciples to be his spatial followers. The designation of the 12 suggests the foundation of a new Israel after the original Israel had rejected their Messiah. The 12 came to Jesus without delay. <clears throat> now the 12 were faced with the task of world evangelization. Jesus appointed 12 men to be his disciples. There was nothing extraordinary or wonderful about the men themselves, but it was their connection with Jesus that made them great. These were young men. Christianity began as a young people's movement. A young man's group, if you will. And most of the apostles were probably all still in their 20s when they went out with Jesus. Now the purpose for which the 12 were appointed was, one, they were to be brought into close association with the Son of God. They were going to live with Him. They were going to travel with Him. They would converse with Him. And importantly enough, they would learn from him. 
Now, secondly, the training was not an end in itself. They were to be sent out to preach the good news and to drive out demons. And these last two elements are closely associated. The salvation Jesus brings involves the defeat of Satan and his demons. And there was a threefold purpose behind the call of the twelve. And the third one is that they might have power to heal sickness, to cast out demons. They, to kind of reiterate, they were to be with him. Jesus was going to send them out to preach. But first there was a time of, of training. There was a time of preparation that Jesus did in private with them before going out in public. And here is a basic principle of service, that we must spend time with him before we move out as God's representatives. Now, they were sent out to preach proclamation of the word. Their basic method of evangelism must always be central. Nothing must be allowed to sub, 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 be subordinate to it. They were given supernatural power. They casted out demons. And casting out demons would attest to men that God was speaking through the apostles. That is one of the signs back then that you knew that this was truthful because of the miracles. They were casting out demons. The Bible had not yet been, or the, the biblical had not been Completed. Miracles were the credentials of God's messengers. Now, today we have the Bible. We have access to the complete Word of God, and we are responsible to believe it without the proof of miracles. Back then, they needed the signs and the miracles to prove that this was from God. Now that we have the Bible, we don't have the need for these signs and these miracles because we have the Word of God to go to. Now, there are three other lists of the apostles in the New Testament. And we can find that in Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. We can check out Luke chapter 6, verses 14 to 16, and also in the book of Acts chapter 1, verse 3. So let's quickly take a look at those. Let's start with Matthew chapter 10. Uh, verses 2 through 4, where it says, Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother. James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew the tax collector. James the son of Alphaeus. And Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Simon the Canite. And Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now, if we look at Luke chapter 6, verses 14, 15, and 16, it says, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. You see that theme there? We always have Judas Iscariot as the traitor, which he was. Now, in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, bear with me again. I know the names are redundant, but it's important to understand this. 
to whom he also presented himself, and we're talking about Jesus, alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The names of the twelve as given in these lists naturally divide into four parts. Peter heads the three other names in the first section. We have Philip that heads the second section. We have James, the son of Alphaeus. Now he was called <clears throat> James the Lesser or James the Less in Matthew. Now the third, the last section, consisted of the name of Judas Iscariot, except for in the book of Acts. Now we see that Simon's nickname was the Rock. Peter. Peter means the Rock. And that was given to him by Jesus. Now, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they were nicknamed the sons of thunder. Now, this probably or this could describe their disposition. It had something of a thunderstorm in it. Now, since Bartholomew is not a personal name, but it is a meaning of the son of Talmai, this disciple probably had another name. Perhaps, maybe, Nathaniel. But Matthew is doubtless to be identified with Levi. And Levi was a tax collector. Nathaniel is probably the Judas, son of James, of Luke's list. Uh, Simon is called the Zealot, likely a reference to his membership in the party of the Zealots, uh, which was a Jewish sect. And they were bent on overthrowing at all costs the Roman control of Palestine. Now we have Judas' surname, and it is given as Iscariot, and probably means the man from the place called Koriath. And he, of course, is further identified as the man who betrayed Jesus. We all know what he did. Um... Now, it was kind of a strange group of men that our Lord chose as his disciples. We had, you know, four of them that were fishermen. We have one, Matthew, Levi. He was a hated tax collector. We had another that was a member of a radical and violent political party, the Zealots, of which we know practically nothing of the others, but all of them were laymen. None of them were a preacher or any kind of an expert in the scriptures, which would have been, you know, our Old Testament, the, the, the Torah. Yet it was with these men that Jesus established his church and decimated, disseminated his God news to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> now, we are going to get into another section here. Uh, we have the histocracy of the, or the, 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 the history of the incident of Jesus' family that can scarcely be denied. The church would not have invented stories that put them into a bad light. 
An important feature of this section is in the insertion of one incident, because we're going to get into here of Jesus, his family, and the Beelzebub controversy. The Beelzebub controversy. Uh, but the important feature of this section is going to be this insertion of this incident, the Beelzebub controversy, into another, uh, the story of the relationship between Jesus and his family. And this is a frequent device in Mark's gospel. Mark uses this literary device to heighten the suspense and to allow for the passage of time. And the association of these two incidents is also going to suggest that Jesus's family members are not unlike the scribes in their attitude towards Jesus. Now, lastly here, I want to finish up with verse 19. We have the name of Judas Iscariot, and it stands out among the apostles. There is mystery connected with one chosen as an apostle that turns out to be the betrayer of our Lord and Savior Jesus. One of the greatest heartaches in Christian service is to see one who was so bright and earnest and apparently devoted, but later he turns his back on Jesus. He turns his back on the Savior and he goes back to the world that crucified him. We have 11 men that proved to be true to the Lord. And through them, Jesus would turn the world upside down. They reproduced themselves in ever-widening circles of outreach. And in one sense, we today are the continuing fruit of their service. There is no way of telling how far-reaching our, our influence for Christ may be. But I want to stop there for today. We'll pick this up next time as we start to unpack the unpardonable sin with verse 20. So until then, God bless you and keep living Christian strong.